Now, Chuck is no stranger to this pulpit. He's been a guest preacher here several times before. But if this is your first time hearing Chuck, you're in for a treat. Chuck is the founder and executive director of Ministry to State, a ministry which came out of the Oklahoma City bombing tragedy in 1995. In addition to overseeing the entirety of the ministry, he leads weekly Bible studies on Capitol Hill and disciples a number of government workers in the Washington, D.C. area. Chuck has published six books and resides in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Debbie. That's a good name for a wife, by the way. <laughs> if you'd like to know more about his ministry, his website is uh, ministrytostate.org. And with that, come on up, Chuck. It's always a privilege to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come and preach to you and to open up God's Word. You've been very gracious to me over the years, and uh, I so much appreciate it. I wish that my wife, Debbie, could be with us sometimes. She is able to come at the same time uh, because of the way my schedule works and the way her schedule works and commitment to the church that... Uh, we attend when I'm not traveling, but she's there in Washington, D.C. It just doesn't always work. So thank you again for your kindness to me. I would like us to turn to the book of Matthew this morning to the 16th chapter. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 28. 21 through 28. And I'll begin with 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God or the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the worship that you have provided for us this morning through the leadership of this church, through those who have gifts of of music and are willing to share it with the rest. Thank you for being present with us. 
And I pray, God, that regardless of where we may be in terms of the gospel, that at this point in our time together, that we would be quiet enough to hear your word, to hear your spirit speak to us through your word, that we might even be changed, challenged, that there may be a different perspective, there may be repentance in our lives, there may be people who we will reconcile with that we've never contemplated being reconciled with before. Whatever it is, we pray that we would be obedient to you and we would be more enamored by your grace and your love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I've noticed about your worship is that you accent different, uh, what shall we say, different parts of the Christian life. You, you want us to come together and worship God and to, as, as we noted at the very beginning of our worship, His glory and His majesty, and in a sense be so consumed with the presence of God. Now, I, we can't see Him, but the Word tells us a lot about Him. And we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. We are surrounded we are surrounded by his voice in a way, his presence, by his creation, even by spending time in worship with each other. We're reminded about what he's doing in our lives and we're drawn to worship him. That is a wonderful part of what it means for us to know Christ. There are other aspects of what it means for us to know Christ, such as being assured of our salvation. The assurance of eternal life is very significant to us. Knowing that we benefit from his word and that we are drawn to his word because we're, we're hungry and we're thirsty. We want to know truth. That's all part of what it means for us to be Christians. We believe that as a Christian, according to Romans, that we're in union with God. Now that may not sound like a lot maybe to some, but... To say that, you're, that you belong to the living God, that you are his daughter, that you are his son, you're his child, that's an incredible statement. But that's what it means to know Christ, to be a Christian. Uh, we talk about uh, the, the aspect of sanctification, that we are constantly putting off the old, putting on the new, that we struggle with sin. And the fact that you struggle with sin is an indication of your relationship with God. And it's a privilege for us to get up in the morning and to feel guilty about something that we said to our spouses or to our children or to our neighbor or to someone at work and realize that God is calling us into repentance and calling us to reconcile with that individual but also go before God and to seek his forgiveness. That is not a sign of someone who is a non-Christian. It's someone, but it's someone who understands what it means to be saved by grace and to be continually sanctified by grace. And the list, the list goes on. But there is one other thing that I would like you to think about this morning that we often don't talk about. But I think this passage draws us to, and that is the benefit of being confronted by God. That as a Christian, as someone who belongs to Christ, 
there is, a, there is this benefit of being confronted by God. Now, if you look at the passage, you'll see that the accent here, the spotlight at the very beginning, falls on Peter. And I suspect we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about who Peter is, but just as a way of, of giving a, a brief overview, quickly. You know Peter because he's an apostle. You know that he was born and, and reared in the northern part of Israel. Those of you who have, who have taken those trips to Israel, to the Holy Land, you know that, that Judah, for example, Jerusalem, that area is very dry, very airy. You go north, it's very green, it's lush. The Sea of Galilee, it's very green and lush, that whole region. And that's where Peter was born. He was a fisherman. I often wonder about what it would be like to interview a fisherman in Peter's day. Learn about, you know, his, his skill set, what it took for him to eventually have his own fishing business, what it looks like to, to build and to maintain a boat and to, like, where do you go to buy the best fishing nets and other kinds of apparatuses that a fisherman need, you know, and, and just, you know, what's the, what's the best way to, of, of preparing a fish? You know, I mean, you could just learn a wealth of things from someone like Peter. But then, of course, he's called into ministry. I mean, just out of the blue. No preparation, no seminary, no Bible college, no even undergraduate, no nothing. He just is called by God to follow Jesus. And really, if you think about it, it's crazy that he would do that. I mean, really, like what in the world was he thinking about? And then we think about Peter's other, other parts of his life, everything from him being a little bit... I don't know, uh, off the cuff in terms of his comments. He, you know, was impulsive. Uh, he was one of the three uh, upper tier disciples. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He had all these special experiences. And yes, he was the one that denied Jesus three times and then was restored. We see that restoration account in the end of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, and then, of course, his ministry. The first, really, the first 12 chapters of Acts is centered upon Peter and his ministry. And then we read other things about him, and especially his epistles, the two epistles. But then, in this particular passage, Matthew provides for us this window into what it means to belong to Christ and to be confronted by Christ. And Peter experienced what we'll say this morning is a most severe gospel confrontation. So let me just pause for a moment and ask you a quick question. When was the last time you experienced some form of gospel confrontation from your Lord? So just think about that. Think about your past. But let's go back to the passage. And let's understand, and I know this will scare you when I say this, but there are these five points here that need to be looked at briefly if we're to understand this gospel confrontation. Here's the first one. How do you define your life? How do you define who you are? And I realize that 
If you go around, we all stand up and we talk about who we are. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I stay at home. I, go to, I, I work outside the home. I'm the husband. I'm the father, right? You can just picture all of it. I'm a grandfather. Uh, Debbie and I have, are reaching this year our 50-70 window. You know what that is? 50-70 window. You reach 50 years of being married, 70 years of age, you know, and uh, that's a really, that's a different, different uh, definition of life, you know. You didn't think about what that would look like 50 years ago. So all of us have our own stories, right? The context may be different, but that gospel confrontation in some ways may feel the same. And the first thing that you need to ask yourself is, how have you been defining your life? If we go back to Peter, it's clear. Peter would say, if he was sitting here, let's say right before we get to Matthew 16, and we were to ask Peter, okay, tell us your definition. Well, we've just given it to you, right? I grew up in this place. I went to this school, so to speak. These are my parents, etc. My brother is Andrew. We got into the fishing business, etc. Then I'm following Jesus. All of a sudden, like, I never even heard of him before, for the most part. And here I'm following him. I'm his disciple. I'm, I've been under his teaching, right? And he would give you all these characteristics that in essence define him. But there's just one problem. As he looks at his life, as he, in essence, looks at the way in which he is following Christ, he is defining it in such a way that is out of accord with God. And so here he is with the disciples, with Jesus. Jesus is explaining what is going to take place. It's, it's a very critical time in regards to redemptive history. If you think about it this way, Whether it be the past or even the future, 2,000 years in the future, 2,000 years in the past, what Jesus is explaining to the disciples is the most important thing of all of redemptive history. In other words, all of history is coming together in what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 16. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And he's going to conquer death. All the Old Testament has been speaking about that. And what takes place after this is always going to be speaking about this particular time and event. That Jesus is going to bring about redemption. And what does Peter say? <laughs> he says, I don't think so. No. For, you know, God, you really need to think a little bit differently. You need to be a little bit more pragmatic here. And I can imagine Peter and his thinking, he's going, now wait a minute. I've given up my business, and it was a pretty good business, by the way. And I, I gave that up, and I've been following you, and I have been amazed at what kind of ministry you have. I don't know anybody that has that kind of mega ministry, that kind of popularity where thousands of people are coming and you're teaching them and they're responding to your teaching and there are people who are being fed who need to be fed and people who need to be healed and all these great benefits and, and wonderful things that are happening and people are benefiting from you and now you're telling me that that's going to be over? You get it? Peter's like, you know, he's just applying the way in which he 
would normally think about life and how he would define his own life and his surroundings. And, and he is an obstructionist. He is a, he is a, a, a ministry fixer. You know, he's going to fix this ministry that looks like it's going to get off the rails. Because this thing that Jesus is speaking about mustn't take place. Because all these things that we've been experiencing are going to be done if you die. Like, what is that all about? All right, so let's just stop for a moment. However you define your life, have you ever, in a sense, or maybe in reality, said to God, no, this is not going to happen. This shall never happen. This is not going to be the story. This is not going to be my story. And would you hear the words of Jesus when he says, get behind me, Satan, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. I will tell you that there have been times in my life where I, I very much can identify with Peter that in ministry, you say, no, this is how ministry must be. And you kind of put that package out there, right? Prayerfully, with a, cons with a consultation of elders and friends in, who are Christians. And you say, yeah, this is the right thing. This is, how, this is how my life needs to be. And in reality, in reality, it has nothing to do with what God is doing. And it's possible for us as individuals, for us within the leadership of the church and the church at large, at times, to be going off the rails and saying to God, we're going to do it my way. I'm going to do, my, I'm going to do life my way. I'm going, to, I'm going to do business my way. I'm going to do marriage my way. I'm going to do raising children my way. I'm going to do my finances my way. And the list goes on and on. And instead of us Humbly coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it that you want? That's what I'm going to do. It amazes me that Peter or any of the disciples didn't just stop and say, all right, Lord, what do we need to do to get in sync with what you just said? We're going to trust you on this one. But that's not what you see. I know this sounds long. Okay, point two. Do you have a memorial view of Jesus? And that's what Peter had. And that's, that was part of the problem. And a memorial view of Jesus is where we say, in essence, to God... All right, what you've done in my life in the past is what you need to be doing in the present and in the future. And I'll never forget that as a young Christian in high school, when I, when I first came to Christ, and Debbie, my wife, uh, both of us came to Christ about the same time through the ministry of Young Life. And that particular time in our lives was incredibly special. The people that God had put us around, had put, us, put around us as a way of discipling and encouraging us, like they were everything to us. And I'll never forget what it was like to be, for them to move on in their lives, and for me to have to move on in my life. I just thought my entire spiritual life and encouragement and fellowship had disappeared. And the problem was that I had this memorial view of my relationship with Christ. That is, that whatever God had done at this particular point in time, that is what he must be doing in the future. And that is, that's poison for us. Because God, God is doing tremendous things in the world and in people's lives and in our own lives, and it's not stagnant. It's going to be progressive. 
And he's going to be teaching us things that we never learned and we would not have learned. And if you have that memorial view that Peter demonstrates here, it will be poison. Thirdly, thirdly, what about your idols? What about Peter's idols? Idolatry is a horrible thing. <laughs> and I, I shouldn't laugh, but the truth is that we all have idols, or we fight idols. Yesterday, I was speaking uh, at a presbytery meeting in South Carolina, and on the way, I needed to take the Uber, and I noticed that the, the young gal that was driving the Uber had this little gold, um, kind of like, uh, well, it was like a statue on her, on her, on her uh, 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 board, or the um, top of her, um, what do we call it? You all know about cars. Good. <laughs> dashboard. Anyway, on the dashboard, there was a little idol. It was gold. It was very attractive, you know? I mean, like, you thought, oh, what is this? And then I realized, ah. So I asked her about herself. She was from Nepal, and she was Hindu. And so she was describing to me that her mother made, made sure that she had this little idol on the dashboard uh, as a way of bringing good luck, in essence. That's, that's a paraphrase, I'm sure, to her life. So her mother, now I don't know if, well, obviously her mother wasn't there, and so I'm assuming that this, this Uber driver bought into that, that she really believed that this little gold uh, thing was going to bring a change in her life, or guard her life, or give her happiness, or whatever you want to say. And whether we, and, and we look at that and we say as Christians, oh my, that's a horrible thing to have idols. But they kind of creep into our lives. They're little things. It's like, no, life must be this way, and as long as life is this way, I'll be happy. And then the question is, where is God in all that? Where is his sufficiency in all that? Where, where do I just find myself being still and knowing that God is God? And be totally content with that. And realize that there are things that I'm not going to have. I can't have. I won't have. But it's okay. And I'm not saying there isn't some degree of suffering. It's okay because I know I'm in the presence of God 24-7. And it does not matter how good I am in my prayer life or my Bible reading or my witnessing or whatever it is. God is always with me. And that is in that is in itself sufficient. But idols will creep in. And Peter had the idol of, I'm going to do life my way. And then fourth of all, of course, is the spiritual warfare. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said to Peter. Now, that, now think about the last time your pastor sat you down and said to you, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Now, I... I hesitate. I don't do that, and I don't think Jack does that either, uh, or your elders. That's a you know. But Jesus did, and Jesus was calling the shots here, so to speak. He was he was describing exactly what was taking place. The most significant thing in all of history. Peter is standing there saying, "No, we're going to change this thing." I'm a ministry fixer. In fact, I can even, I can, if you ask me, I'll give you a better plan in terms of your plan of redemption, God. 
that is, that is nothing but evil and wickedness and something that comes right out of hell. It is something from Satan. And Jesus is calling it what it is. And I need to see in my own life where Satan is present. And you need to as well. And we don't have time, but the New Testament, especially in the book of Ephesians, reminds us about the spiritual warfare and the means that we need to use in order to deal with it. And then the last point here that we need to understand is the fifth one, which is to die to self. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In the Roman era, if you were on the street in Rome or anywhere, like Jerusalem, for example, and you saw someone carrying a cross, literally carrying that large wooden cross, you knew that one, they had been charged with a crime. Secondly, that they had been found guilty. They had been tried and found guilty. And third, you knew that they had not just been sentenced to so many years in prison, but they had been sentenced to death. And Jesus here is saying to us that we need to, as Christians, carry our cross. That is, we need to die to self. We need to be willing to say, Lord, this is what I would love to have. This is, this is how I want to define my life. But I understand that it's not my will to be done, but it's your will to be done. That I need to have in mind the things of God as opposed to the things of man. That in order for me to truly be someone who is so enamored with being in the presence of Christ, with experiencing his love, with, by being just simply still and meditating on all the things that he has said in his word, which I know is a lot, but the point is, is that, is that I, 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 I take his truth and I filter out all the things that are in essence a distraction. But in order to do that, I realize that there are a lot of things that I must be willing to give up. Maybe they're small things, maybe they're big things. But I do so because of my love for Christ. Because instead of saying to Christ, no, that will never happen to you, I need to be saying, Lord, show me, give me by your grace the ability to desire what you desire for me, and also to carry it out. A few months ago, I received a phone call from, I guess it was an email, from the father of my youngest daughter's friend. And he contacted me because a man that he knew was in jail in Shawnee, Oklahoma. 
Shawnee is about 45 minutes east of Oklahoma City, where I live with my wife and children for 20 years as I pastored Heritage Presbyterian Church. So he thought I might have some ability to help this man. His name is Paul, who's in jail there. And so he explained the circumstances. He said that Paul is Chinese. He was a pastor in mainland China, in prison for a number of years, a number of times. Eventually, his family left mainland China, ended up in California. And while he's in California, he wanted to uh, provide for his family, and he became a trucker. He drove these large 18-wheelers across the country. And he was coming back from a long haul, and he was coming on... He was coming through Oklahoma on Route 40, and in the process of coming basically in the middle of the state, probably towards the uh, latter part of the day, he hit a man who was a tow truck driver doing some kind of work on the side of the road, and he killed him. Apparently, he maybe didn't quite know that he had hit the man. He kept going. Eventually, he's arrested for hit and run, and now he's in jail waiting uh, for charges and trials, etc. It's a really sad story in a lot of ways. So we've been praying for Paul and his wife, Candy, who are, and, the two, and the children in California. But what I notice is that he, every, on occasion, he'll write a letter and he'll send it to his wife, and then she'll send it to the friends. And so I, I, that's how I got a copy of this letter. And he describes what life has been like for him. He talks about the fact that, that he is willing to face whatever the reality is for these charges that are there. He's not trying to fight that. Uh, but he also knows that his life has really been changed, been turned upside down. And he has a choice, obviously. He could just sit there and moan and be bitter that life didn't turn out the way that he had. He could talk about how much he has served God and, and this is what he gets in, in return for serving God. He could talk about all those kinds of things. But I didn't, and I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't have those kinds of thoughts and he doesn't have a lot of struggles. I'm sure he does. But what really caught my attention was how he began to minister to those in this jail. And please understand, a jail in Oklahoma would be different than a prison in Oklahoma or anywhere else in the world or in the country. A jail, you're, you're, you're with a lot of people who, uh, you're in a very uh, uh, confined area with a lot of different other men, and it can really be difficult. But this is what he says. He says that while he's there, he realized that God was calling him into ministry. And he talks about the name of two men that he's ministering. I'll just read a little bit of his letter. He says, the names are Alex, who is 20 years old, and Tarp, who is 18 years old. He says, please also keep them in your prayers, for they have both grown up with their, with their mothers as their fathers were in prison. And their mothers have, have remarried, and they are Mexican-Americans, and I treat them with a father's heart and help them in their daily lives. And then he goes on and he talks about their interest in studying the Bible with him. And so he says that there's sometimes during the course of the day where he will forget about the appointed time in which they're going to start the Bible study and they'll remind him. And they've been going through the book of 
of John, and they're in the 14th chapter. And he describes what it's like to be with these two young men in jail, where he may be eventually taken to prison, and they may be taken to another prison. But while he is with them, they are praying together. They are studying the book of John together. They are talking about the gospel. I don't know if they've made a profession of faith or not, but I read this letter and I say to myself, here's a man who could go to God and say, never, this will never happen to me, and be bitter and angry and irritated, and just be so self-centered. But instead, what I hear when I read the letter is, not my will, but your will be done. And however I can serve you in this jail, in the middle of Oklahoma, I will do so for your glory. I just love it. And it challenges me, especially when I go through these little occasions where I don't get my way or something interferes or whatever it is, and I have this little Chuck area pity party. And then I think about Peter and Jesus' words, especially, am I willing to die to self? The only way you will be willing to die to self is through the gospel. Because you are so enamored with your Lord that you want nothing but his presence and his grace. And so my prayer for you is that as you think about your life and your circumstances, that you'll be reminded about Matthew 16. And you'll think about those five quick little points. How are you defining your life? Do you have this memorial view? What about your idols? What about the spiritual warfare? And what about dying to self? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us. Help us to be so enamored by you that each day as we wake up, we say, Lord, show me my idols. Show me how I have in mind the things of man as opposed to the things of God. And by your grace, by your love, help us to follow you and to die to self. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.